Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Amy Swearer. And I'm Giancarlo Conaparo. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome to another episode of SCOTUS 101. This week, I'm joined once again by my friend and colleague, Zach Smith, who's filling in for Amy. I appreciate you having me back. So, Zach, last week, we had Professor Josh Blackman on the show to discuss COVID restrictions on houses of worship. And two cases at the Supreme Court that asked for emergency relief from New York's restriction. New York's restriction, as you probably remember, imposed stricter occupancy limits on houses of worship than it did on secular businesses. Well, just a few minutes before midnight on Thanksgiving, the court handed the plaintiffs a win. The court held that if a COVID restriction singles out houses of worship for harsher treatment than secular businesses, the restrictions must pass strict scrutiny. New York's restrictions failed because there was no evidence that houses of worship contributed to outbreaks or that they otherwise needed to be treated any worse than businesses. The case is also significant because it's the first instance in which the presence of the court's newest member, Amy Coney Barrett, made a difference. She joined the 5-4 majority striking down the restrictions with the Chief Justice joining Justices Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor in dissent. And in fact, although the majority opinion was issued per curiam, meaning unsigned, Ross Guberman, who's the president of Legal Writing Pro, stated in a New York Times article that based on his comparison of some of the language in that opinion with Judge, then-Judge Barrett's opinions on the Seventh Circuit, he thinks she might have written that majority opinion. The court is back from its Thanksgiving break and had a busy week of oral arguments. Giancarlo, what was first up on the court's plate? Well, we had Trump versus New York. That's the case that involves uh, the president's effort to exclude illegal aliens from counting towards a state's allotment of seats in the House of Representatives. So as you know, we just conducted the 2020 census, which means that we're about to recalculate how many representatives each state gets in the House. In July, the president announced that it would be his administration's policy to exclude illegal aliens from the population total used for apportionment. He issued a memorandum uh, directing the Secretary of Commerce, who oversees the census, to determine the number of illegal aliens in each state. A number of blue states and local governments led by New York challenged the order and won in lower court. The Supreme Court took the case and now has to decide two issues. First of all, whether the plaintiffs have standing and whether the policy is lawful. At oral argument, the justices were almost entirely focused on that first question, and several justices seemed inclined to wait on reaching the merits because it's not clear at all that the Census Bureau will even be able to identify the number of illegal aliens in each state, and it's unknown whether any of the plaintiff states will lose House seats. The justices spent very little time on the merits, but Justice Barrett noted that history cuts against the government's position, and Justice Brett Kavanaugh stated that he found the challenger's arguments forceful. For me, standing seems like a huge problem here. Remember, the memorandum only instructs the Secretary of Commerce to provide the president with the information he requested. It doesn't actually implement his policy. And whether the plaintiffs will suffer any harm when or if the policy is actually implemented seems to me entirely uncertain at this point. Next up is Van Buren v. United States. Nathan Van Buren, a Georgia police officer, had access to a license plate database that he was entitled to use for law enforcement purposes. 
when someone offered him several thousand dollars to search the database for his own personal private use, Van Buren agreed. Unfortunately for Van Buren, the person who made the request became an FBI informant. Van Buren was charged and convicted of violating the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. The question before the court is whether a person who is authorized to access information on a computer for certain purposes violates the act if he accesses the same information for an improper purpose. Van Buren says no. DOJ says yes. At oral argument, the justices seem skeptical of the parade of horribles put forward by Van Buren's counsel, including his argument that under its interpretation, DOJ could prosecute a secretary who checks Facebook on her work computer in contravention of company policy or someone who enters false information about himself on a dating website. Uh Uh-oh. That seems like a recipe for a lot of people to go to jail. Uh, I ask no questions, GC. <laughs> uh, still, the justices weren't necessarily buying what DOJ was selling either. Justice Neil Gorsuch expressed concerns that this case was the latest in a long line of cases where the government has sought to significantly expand federal criminal liability. He also stated that he would have, quote, thought that the Solicitor General's office isn't just a rubber stamp of the U.S. Attorney's offices and that there would be some careful thought given as to whether this is really an appropriate reading of the CFAA. Other justices, including Justices Thomas, Alito, and Kavanaugh, seem somewhat sympathetic to the idea that those with access to private information could do great harm with it if they chose and ask what mechanisms would be available to hold individuals accountable who use such information improperly. Although Van Buren's counsel stated that such conduct would likely be covered by other criminal statutes, he didn't identify any other statutes which might apply. Justice Alito asked whether supplemental briefing would be appropriate, especially to help clarify what the parties meant when referencing certain terms in the statute. As I quickly log out of my personal Gmail account on my Heritage-issued laptop, it will be interesting to see whether the justices request supplemental briefing, which I think is probably unlikely, and what the lineup of the justices will be when the case is decided. While it's difficult to read the tea leaves from oral argument, this may be a case that doesn't split strictly along ideological lines. And if the justices do decide that Van Buren's conduct is not covered by the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, it's important to remember that Congress can always amend the statute to ensure that those who misuse private information can be held accountable. The court also heard oral argument in three other cases, which we'll just discuss briefly. The first will decide whether United States companies can be held liable in U.S. courts for alleged human rights violations perpetrated not by themselves but by the foreign suppliers of their raw materials in foreign countries. The second case will decide whether a company can sue to block the enforcement of an IRS notice. And third uh, will decide if Ramos versus Louisiana, which you might recall from last term, held that jury verdicts must be unanimous, applies retroactively. If it does, that means that people who were previously convicted by non-unanimous juries are entitled to new trials. Now, moving on to our interview. This week, I had the pleasure of interviewing Sixth Circuit Judge and SCOTUS shortlister, Judge Raymond Kethledge. Judge Kethledge has served on the Sixth Circuit since 2008, where he has distinguished himself as an extraordinary writer and a faithful defender of the Constitution. Before he took the bench, Judge Kethledge was in private practice in his home state of Michigan. And before that, he worked for Senator Spencer Abraham and clerked for Judge Ralph Guy on the Sixth Circuit and Justice Anthony Kennedy. 
Judge Kethledge, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, Judge, before we dive into your legal career, I want to ask you about Michigan. You're a Michigander through and through, school, clerkship, practice, teaching, the bench, but you're not a born native. So what drew you to Michigan and what kept you there? Well, um, my family, uh, my parents have pretty strong roots in the New York and New Jersey area. And as, as I gather, you know, I was born in New Jersey. Uh, but my dad was a Volkswagen executive, and uh, every time he got promoted, we had to move. So we moved nine times before I graduated high school, and the last time was the move to Michigan during high school. And so that's what brought me here, and it was challenging at the time, but, uh, but it has proven to be a great blessing. Uh, I love Michigan. Uh, I like the people, I like the values, and I love the outdoors, and especially northern Michigan. So I'm very happy to be here. Are you the first person in your family to go to law school? Yes, I am. What made you choose that path? Well, uh, I actually, uh, that was in part the subject of a TED Talk I did earlier this year. But I guess the short answer is um, that... When I was in college, I really found myself enjoying the analytical work and the writing that I was doing in my history classes. I was a history major. And at that time, I was actually, I had a contract to go to flight school for the Marine Corps, and I had gone to OCS after my freshman year. And so I was very set on that. But by my junior year, I decided that I wanted to do work that was more like what I was doing in my history classes. And so I made the big decision not to go into the Marine Corps and instead to go to law school. Uh, and so that's what I did. In retrospect, I really wish very much that I could have done both, but I simply would not have had enough time in practice to have been eligible for the judgeship that I did get if I had gone into the Marine Corps for four years or it would have been really a seven year commitment to be a pilot. And, um, and so I guess, uh, I think the Lord just had a different plan for me. Uh, and I, I, I love my work, so I'm happy where I ended up. So after law school, you clerked uh, for judge Ralph guy on the sixth circuit and then justice Kennedy. Do you have any particularly special memories of, of clerking for both judges? Well, it was, I mean, it was a very uh, warm and rewarding experience to, to clerk for each of them. Ralph is my next door neighbor now in the uh, Ann Arbor Federal Building. Uh, so my old office is uh, less than a stone's throw down the hall. I, I think working for Ralph, uh, I, what I took away from that was just his extraordinary humility and decency. Ralph Guy is an iconic legal figure in Michigan, um, uh, but yet he had no airs about him whatsoever. Uh, would not mention that he was a judge when he was sort of out and about, treated everyone with, with the utmost respect, uh, just had no hubris whatsoever. And his example made a very, very strong impression on me um, back at the time I was clerking with him and stayed with me uh, thereafter. Um, uh, Justice Kennedy 
the 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 one of the strongest impressions I had of him was just his extraordinary conscientiousness. He would typically be in the office by 6.15 or 6.30 in the morning and was very engaged with each case, was not one of these jurists who's sort of on autopilot and letting the clerks fly the plane. Um, and so the, the two of them uh, were just uh, – really valuable role models for me, not just as a lawyer or a judge, but as a person uh, moving forward in my life. And it was, I was extraordinarily fortunate to work for both of them. And I've, I've been fortunate to have a a great relationship with each of them um, uh, in all the years afterward. In addition to the relationships you formed with the judges, did you did uh, the relationships you formed with any of your cl- clerks, notably now Judge Stefanos Bibas, did that shape your career in any way? Well, shaping the career, I guess, in some ways. Um, I mean, I you know, it was great to work with such talented uh, people. Uh, I mean, my co-clerks uh, with Judge Guy remained good friends. Um, and I stay in touch with them and my co-clerks with uh, Justice Kennedy. Uh, we're all good friends and I'm very much in touch with them. Uh, uh, in addition to Steve, and I think I'm one of like three people on the planet that call uh, Judge B the Steve rather than <laughs> Stephanos. But anyway, that's what that's what I called him back then. And so, you know, old habits are hard to break. But uh, Steve Bebus, uh, Harry Sussman, who's one of the best trial lawyers in the country, Christopher Yu, at, at, who's at Penn Law School, and myself. So it was it was a great uh, group of people. Um, I mean, how how did they shape my career? Uh, I mean, I I don't know about shaping my career, but if you broaden the the uh, the angle to include the other clerks in the Supreme Court building the year I was there, I do think you start getting some career shaping going on. Um, I was fortunate to have uh, good relationships with many of them, both on the conservative and the liberal sides of the court, but. I guess one relationship that just obviously had a very concrete effect on my trajectory in my career was my uh, close friendship with Noel Francisco, who clerked for Justice Scalia when I was with Justice Kennedy. And Noel was just leaving the White House Counsel Office when the, the vacancy for the seat, which I now have in the Sixth Circuit, arose. And Noel uh, was kind enough to broker uh, an introduction between me and the person in the White House Counsel Office who was gathering applications for this seat. Uh, and so Noel, uh, Noel really did help shape my career because uh, he had a lot to do. He helped me a lot getting to the job I have now. Can you tell me a little bit about how that process worked for you from uh, private practice to getting to the bench? It's different for everybody. There isn't a template for uh, applying to be a federal judge or becoming a federal judge. There's a lot of variation at the state level, you know, depending on what state you're in. There's considerable variation depending on the administration and and where the selection power primarily resides, uh, whether it's mostly in the White House or whether 
the attorney general's office or DOJ generally has a lot to say. Um, but in my case, like I said, I mean, there was a vacancy that arose on our court. It was back in March of 06. Um, and I just gave Noel a call and said, you know, do you think I would be a plausible candidate for this? And he said, how old are you? And I said, I'm 39. And he said, well, it's better if it starts with a four, <laughs> but, but I'll, uh, I'll, you know, I'll see, I'll put in a word and we'll see where it goes. And really all I did was he gave me an email address of the person who was handling this in the White House Counsel's office. And I just sent a, an email to that person, Brett Gary, who's an extraordinarily impressive, one of the most impressive people I've met professionally. So I sent an email to Brett and it was just, you know, I'm hi, I'm applying my, my resume is attached. That was it. And, um, uh, and then about, I don't know, a week later, I got a phone call saying that they wanted me to come out for an interview. And, and then the day after that, uh, after that interview, I interviewed over at DOJ. So, and then, you know, you wait around, it's radio silence for four months or something. And then all of a sudden I got a phone call from Brett saying that I had been provisionally selected subject to my uh, background check, you know, coming up relatively clean, which it did. Uh, going back in time for just a moment between your clerkships, uh, you worked for Senator Spencer Abram, who, among other things, was one of the founders of the Federalist Society and the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. What was that experience like? Oh, it was really a, a wonderful experience working for Senator Abraham. My wife and I moved to Alexandria, the D.C. area, Alexandria, Old Town, um, right after my clerkship with Judge Guy. And I was working at Sidley and Austin, as it was known then. Um, and then Spence got elected. I did not work in his campaign, but I kind of got recruited to work for him. So uh, I did Judiciary Committee matters uh, for Senator Abraham, along with uh, a number of other things. He was on the Judiciary Committee, um, but I had a bunch of other issues that were just sort of more general Senate stuff, like the telecom bill, for example. Um, it was really a great experience. I mean, uh, Senator Abraham's a, a, just a brilliant person, uh, incredibly articulate, political, uh, I mean, politically just really acute, insightful judgment. He was a lot of fun to be around. He was, I think he was 42 then. And uh, it was a great seasoning experience as a young person to see very much up close how how these senators interacted with each other, both on the uh, Judiciary Committee, where they would be sitting just feet away from from staff like myself, and also on the Senate floor where, you know, we'd spend a, a fair amount of time usually in in these pens that are along the, the walls. Um, I mean, we had quite a lineup on the Judiciary Committee in those days. Uh, Senator Hatch was the chair. Um, uh, Mike DeWine had joined the committee with Senator Abraham. On the Democratic side, you had Leahy, Ted Kennedy, Joe Biden, Feinstein, Herb Cole, Russ Feingold. Uh, it, was a, it was a formidable lineup on that side. 
And, uh, yeah, so we'd just go in there and brief the senators and help prep them for wh- whatever they had to scrap about during the, the hearings and the markups. Uh, and, um, and then, you know, help them out on the floor as well. Uh, it was it was great to gain the institutional perspective of the Senate and the legislative branch in general as well. Um, I found that uh, even as soon as when I clerked for Justice Kennedy after I left the Senate, just the experience of being inside the legislative branch was extraordinarily helpful in cases of statutory interpretation and in separation of powers uh, cases or with respect to those issues generally. And one thing that experience just completely disabused me of is the idea that legislative history has any value at all. (laughs) Having myself written some of it while I was there, uh, and I've spoken about this elsewhere with no adult supervision whatsoever. And I mean, just just how totally remote the legislative history is uh, from the actual consciousness of any U.S. senator. It's I mean, this stuff is being done in a separate galaxy from the one in which they are uh, acting and thinking and aware of things. Uh, There's just almost literally no connection between what we were doing as Judiciary Committee staff and what the senators knew about or were aware of. And so the idea that that what we were doing should somehow dictate the obligations of citizens in this country under different statutes to me was just, you know, completely incredible after I had been there. But uh, it was a great experience. It really was. And it was a lot. It was so much fun to work in the Capitol building. I mean, we weren't there all the time. We were in the Dirksen Senate office building, but you'd go over there, you know, to go to the floor and so on. And walking through there and just all the history there, especially as a early U.S. Uh, history major. Uh, it was just uh, it was a really fun time. Uh, D.C., is a really fun place to work for about four years in your 20s. And then my advice is if you have a better place to be, which is just about anywhere, go there. <laughs> so besides uh, Senator Abraham, uh, Judge Guy, and Justice Kennedy, uh, who have some of the other mentors been? Well, I think a couple of my uh, professors come to mind there. I had some very important mentors as professors. One of them was one of my history professors, Mills Thornton, who uh, uh, I took for several history classes. He, uh, Mills is from uh, Montgomery, Alabama, and uh, he has since retired, but he... I, I did, you know, I talk about this in my TED talk. I really didn't take school very seriously uh, my first year or two. And Mills is somebody who really got through to me. Uh, maybe he's sort of an Alabama version of, you know, one of these Robin Williams characters in, in these sort of English novel-esque type movies, Goodwill Hunting or whatever the heck they are. But, but Mills really got through to me about how important and how exciting uh, uh, history can be to study. And, and he, he was the first uh, and one of the very few professors I ever had who really marked up my papers for style. Uh, and actually the way he marked up my papers 
uh, became the template for how I mark up my clerk's work and my students' work. Um, and so I always say that Mills is the person who taught me how to write. Uh, so, and he's just, and he's just super wise and erudite and measured and just brilliant. And, uh, and so Mills has been somebody whom I've been close to for all these years to this day. And then in law school, James J. White, he's the white in White and Summers, uh, the the iconic UCC treatise. Mm -hmm. And Jim White is this really kind of fiery, blunt, uh, it's sort of like George Patton teaches, you know, law school. Um, and, and he's, you know, he's a, a, a very strong uh, and blunt conservative. And, uh, and he taught his commercial transactions class, which was itself iconic at Michigan Law School. He taught that at 0800 every day and had a very rigorous uh uh, Socratic method the whole time, and, and this just really predatory. I've always said this predatory sense of humor throughout the class, and it was just it was just an amazing class. I took three classes with Jim, but Jim um, Jim is somebody I've remained really close with uh, ever since then. He was the opening speaker at my investiture, which was at Michigan Law School, and uh, he's somebody who helped me an awful lot of my career after I left law school. Um, and so I would point to those two as very important mentors whom I was really lucky to have. Speaking of your writing style, you've been recognized as one of the great writers on the bench at the moment. Uh, and I don't say that to flatter you, just to tee up my question, which is, can you unpack a little bit for me more about that style that you learned and how you've applied it and taken it into the judicial setting? Um, sure, I'll, I'll try. Uh I mean, I, I always enjoyed writing. Like I said, I mean, it's one of the reasons I went to law school is when, when I was writing these papers in my history and also my philosophy classes as an undergraduate, I really enjoyed uh, the process of writing and, and trying to, uh, to, to put the words together in a way that was persuasive, but also uh, had some literary merit. Um, and there are all kinds of practical reasons to do that as well. Uh, but then as a practicing lawyer, um, you know, I had a, a mix of trial court and appellate court, you know, stuff more, it was like maybe 60% appellate by the very end, but it, the appellate was less than 50% most of the time. But anyway, you know, I, I found myself writing a lot of briefs and so on. And so I, I really thought seriously about writing as a craft in its own right. I mean, that's the first thing. So many lawyers, most lawyers, think of writing as just something incidental to the more important other work that they do as lawyers. Uh, and writing is is almost on the level of typing. It's just something you have to do in order to get other things done, uh, in order to get your brief filed. And I just I just always took writing very very seriously, deadly seriously, as a craft in its own right. And so I. I tried to study writing when when I would read really good prose, I would I mean, not only sort of enjoy the experience of reading it, but then I'd go back and study it and try to understand why uh, it had the effect it did like Robert Bork. I mean, his 
his book, The Tempting of America, which I read uh, the summer before my 1L year. Um, that I mean, Robert Bork is just one of the great legal stylists of the 20th century, no question about it. And so, you know, reading that book, I was just from the literally the first page, I was just struck with the extra, extraordinary pa- power and elegance of his prose. And so I, I tried to study it and understand why. And then, and then. I relatedly studied Strunk and White. I I didn't really study that. I didn't study it in college. I I think I did an English class in high school, like a lot of people do, but I circled back to it and really studied it um, as a lawyer and tried to make myself proficient in those rules. And I mean, if you're writing as a lawyer and you are you don't know those rules like an old friend you're you're almost committing malpractice it's just not that hard there're 33 pages of rules mm-hmm. and so like when i mark up my clerk's work or my students work a lot of times i mean i'll do it in terms of strunk of white numbers s and w 15 s and w 22 s and w 20 and they know what that means and and if they look at the sentence they'll see how they violated that rule I'll sort of, you know, have some other something else there to help them understand what I'm getting at. But um, so I studied writing as a craft and then more and more, as I understood it better, I started really seeking out good, good writing and, and again, studying it to try to understand why it was so good. Um, and it, that's a lifelong process. It really is. I mean, you you can't be a good writer unless you read good writing. It's simple. That's simple. And so what, if you're reading your phone, most of the time, you're not going to be a good writer. You're just not, you have to read good writing, which usually means not legal writing because most legal writing is terrible. It's pretentious. It's overlong. It's much less accessible than it should be. And, um, Anyway, so uh, there are good legal writers, but you have to expose yourself to as much good writing as you can and try to be influenced by it. Expose yourself, make yourself vulnerable to being influenced by it. Sometimes when I was writing a brief, I uh, I would purposely read somebody whose prose I thought was exceptionally good, like the night before I'd be working on it because I wanted to be influenced by those structures and those rhythms uh, when I wrote the next day. And it really, it does. I remember I got on this Mark Twain kick and then I wrote this brief that was like kind of almost oddly Twain-esque. And, uh, you know, it just made clear to me that, my goodness, you know, you read something the day before and, and it does influence you to some extent the next day. Besides Mark Twain, who are some of the other non-legal authors who you think just write in that powerful way? I mean, this is a very eclectic group, I would say, uh, of writers whom I, I just really admire above all others. Abraham Lincoln uh, is is right at the top. I mean, his second inaugural address is just one of the truly stupendous pieces of writing in American history. And of course, his Gettysburg addresses as well. The Apostle Paul, uh, you'd, uh, you'd be hard pressed to come up with a better stylist than Paul. Uh, and Paul was 
extremely well-educated, uh, extremely knowledgeable about rhetorical devices. Most rhetorical advices, if you read um, Brian Garner's The Elements of Legal Style, he's got a section in there on rhetorical devices. And you'll notice they all have Greek names to this day. Polysyndeton, asyndeton, metaphor is Greek. Um, and, and so they all have Greek names because uh, it was really the Greeks who, who developed these devices. And Paul spoke Greek. Uh, I think he wrote in Greek a lot of the time. And so Paul was acutely aware of all these rhetorical devices, and he uses them constantly. I mean, some of the most aggressive usage of rhetorical devices you're going to see anywhere. But something like Corinthians 13, uh, first uh, mm-hmm. Corinthians 13, I mean, that is that is just one of the most stupendous pieces of writing you're going to encounter anywhere. So uh, I'd put Paul there. Uh, Holmes, I think, is just one of the best uh, legal stylists this country has ever produced, particularly his dissents, because in his dissents, he tends to write in the active voice, whereas for whatever reason, in his majority opinions, he tends to write in the passive voice. I wonder if, if that's because part of him feels that he's writing for an institution when he's writing for the court, but when he is writing a dissent, he's writing for himself. It's funny. I mean, sometimes my clerks, I have them do unpublished opinion drafts for me. I write my own published opinions, but sometimes when they write me memos, they've got a good human voice and Mm -hmm. it's not stuffy and pretentious and, you know, abstract when it doesn't need to be, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, the memos read well, but then I get a draft unpublished opinion and it's something I see every year. I call it captionitis. When there's a caption there, the voice changes and it becomes institutional and ponderous. And, you know, it becomes like conventional legal writing, which is dreadful to read. And it's because they just unconsciously think they're writing for an institution. And so they start to sound like an institution rather than a human being. Orwell is an extraordinarily uh, good stylist, if you ask me. His politics in the English language, if mm-hmm. if anyone's listening and they're going to be a lawyer and they haven't read that, they need to read that. His indictment of political writing applies like, – Every word in comma applies to legal writing, and that's the 12 best pages about writing that I know of anywhere. You can get it online. It's really easy to find. H.L. Mencken, I think, is an extraordinary stylist as well, kind of riotous, really funny, uh, almost nihilistic. I mean, he just rips on everybody, but... His use of metaphor in particular is extraordinary, uh, and so uh, he's somebody whose prose, I think, is really worth studying, too. So besides legal writing, you have actually tried your hand at non-legal writing, writing a book with Michael Irwin called Lead Yourself First, Inspiring Leadership Through Solitude. Can you tell me what the book is about and what led you to write it? Well, I mean, uh, I guess I'll try to give a short answer to what it's about. It's uh, the short answer is, 
It's about the importance of solitude to living a successful and fulfilled life. Solitude is not just being physically alone. It's being alone with your thoughts. And that solitude has been used by leaders throughout history, oftentimes without recognizing it as such. But it's something that we're, we're, we're rapidly losing today because if you define solitude as being alone with your thoughts, which can be true when you're just walking, you know, if you're on campus and you're walking from one class to another, or if you're in a restaurant, but you're by yourself, um, you can be in solitude then. But if you're looking at your phone, you're not in solitude, even if you are physically alone. You're bringing other people's thoughts, and they're usually just very superficial. Uh, other people's thoughts, other people's emotions, which with social media is usually kind of an open sewer pipe. And you're bringing all of that into your own mind, and you're not having that time with your own thoughts that as a matter of course, people of my generation, and you know maybe 10 years younger as well, and of course older, as a matter of course, we had time alone with our thoughts. And in my life, uh, I've realized how extraordinarily important that time has been and how at critical junctures in my life, it made the difference between one path and another. And Mike Irwin is a, uh, uh, he was at the time an active duty army officer. He was studying leadership psychology here at the University of Michigan. And his brother-in-law, both of them are West Pointers, his brother-in-law was clerking for me at the time, so that's how I met Mike. But anyway, Mike's super extroverted. I'm more of an introvert, but we realized after a conversation that solitude was really important to both of us and that, and that we're losing it as a society because of all these handheld devices, which are designed to, I mean, these applications are designed quite deliberately to be addictive, to make you constantly want to check these things as opposed to have 20 minutes in your own head. Uh, and so Mike and I decided to write the book and, and we did. It came out in 2017. In the book, you profile a number of prominent individuals, including President Eisenhower, Pope John Paul III, Martin Luther King, and General James Mattis. How did you choose who to profile? Well, some of them were contemporary people, like uh, General Mattis, and some of them are historical figures. Nine chapters are describe how a historical figure used solitude to be a more effective leader. Um, so Dwight Eisenhower, Eisenhower was a super extrovert, yet he had a practice during World War II of writing memoranda to himself as a way of thinking through very complex problems. And as somebody who writes, I can tell you the most, and this is what Eisenhower said, the most rigorous way to think about a problem is to write about it. That's why I write my own published opinions, because you have to think so much harder about a problem when you write about it from a clean piece of paper than you do if you're merely editing someone else's work. There's just no comparison at all. But anyway, so Eisenhower, just to give you one example, Eisenhower had this practice of writing memoranda to himself during the war as a way of thinking through problems he typically would try to distill a complex problem down to a simple guiding principle that he could use in the moment. And 
the chapter about Eisenhower describes how he did that throughout the war, starting with five days after Pearl Harbor, where without any warning, really, he's thrown into a meeting with George C. Marshall, one of the most formidable people, (laughs) figures in all of American history. And Marshall challenges him about something, and Eisenhower says, can I have some time to think about it? And he goes off and writes this first memo, that of the first of these memos. But then it culminates with a memo he writes to himself on June 3rd, 1944, entitled Worries of a Commander. And it's about D-Day and about its enormous complexity. But in that complexity, he identifies the one critical variable that's going to determine success or failure. Then he articulates a guiding principle with respect to that variable that he can apply in the moment. And in the next 72 hours, he does exactly that. And his principle was was correct. And that's why D-Day, in large part, why it succeeded uh, in its first three days. So, you know, there are eight other historical chapters and there are um, uh, people whom we interviewed. Uh, Mike is an extraordinarily well-connected person. So he knew tons of people. And and from his service in Afghanistan, he had a good connection with uh, General Mattis. So we spoke to him when he was CENTCOM commander, commanding the entire Middle East theater. This was 2011. And he was at a plane like 30,000 feet above Afghanistan. We talked to him for 15 minutes. And he was great to talk to. He's an amazing guy. Well, Judge, uh, I wanted to thank you so much for the amount of time you've given us today and uh, ask one final question. Sure. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? Well, I... uh, there's a rumor about that you all ask this question of everybody, so I kind of, <laughs> I kind of <laughs> ru- tried to think about it. A bit. The rumor is true. Um, yeah, so I think it's per- so. I, I the last couple of years at Michigan Law School, I taught federal courts. I'm never going to do that again because it's you know it's the calculus of law school, and as I like to say, it's the Eastern Front of day uh, of uh, of side jobs. And so, I mean, it just chewed up an immense amount of my time and energy and so on, almost to the point where it was like traumatic, but, but what, but it was, it's great material. And, and I learned a ton and what I really, I guess, learned anew is just, just how profound Marbury is. Um, And, uh, and so the, the, the justice, that I would love to have a conversation with is Chief Justice John Marshall. Marbury is like the Book of Romans for the Article Three judicial power. It's this after-the-fact exegesis about, okay, this huge thing just happened, in his case, the Constitution, and, and what does it mean? And what does it mean with respect to the judicial power in particular, and the Article Three judicial power? And it's really the metaphysics of the Article Three judicial power that he's describing there. And you know, he talks about how the province of the courts solely, an extraordinary word in that sentence, solely, is to def- decide upon the rights of individuals. So it's that humble task of resolving, for the most part, private disputes that yet, in that same opinion, gives rise to this 
extraordinarily consequential power of judicial review and allows him to review the constitutionality of executive branch action in that case, and also in the very same case, legislative action in the form of a statute that presumed to give original jurisdiction to the Supreme Court over writs of mandamus, whereas the Constitution makes clear that the court can only have appellate jurisdiction over those writs. So it's this, I mean, extraordinary kind of exegesis of what the Article Three judicial power is. And I think it would be very, very rewarding to speak to him about, to, to fill out further his understanding of the nature of the Article Three judicial power, and then to run past him some of the things that have happened since then and, and get his reaction, which I imagine would be uh, one of uh, great, surprise with uh, with regard to a lot of stuff that has happened since then. But anyway, so that's that's whom I would uh, love to have an hour to talk to. Well, Judge, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. It's been a lot of fun, and I'm happy to do it. Your questions were a lot of fun to answer, and it was great. Zach, are you ready for trivia? As ready as I'm going to be, GC. All right. This is your first time getting grilled. So uh, I thought (laughs) with Van Buren uh, before the court, uh, it got me thinking, what about the Supreme Court's relationship with technology? And I think if anything, Van Buren highlights that that is still (laughs) an tenuous relationship at best. Well, I can only hope they have a better relationship with technology than I do. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Number one. This is a justice who definitely would not have appreciated the parade of horribles listed in Van Buren. This former justice is famous for eschewing technology. Although he served well into the internet age, he had no email, cell phone, or even an answering machine. I think, would that be Justice Souter? It absolutely is Justice Souter. He did all his writing with a fountain pen. And I have another fun story about him. In retirement, He moved away from his longtime two-story home into a one-story home. And according to a New York Times profile, part of the reason that he left his two-story home was that it was not structurally sound enough to support his vast collection of books. Interesting. (laughs) Isn't he also known for eating an apple every day for lunch? I don't know, but that wouldn't surprise me. I think I've heard that. (laughs) All right. Number two. This is the only Article III court that does not use the e-filing and docket management website called PACER. I think that's got to be SCOTUS itself, right? Yes, yes it is. It was a little bit of a trick question. Yes, SCOTUS does not use PACER. It has its own online docket system. On the subject of PACER, question number three. In 2020, the Supreme Court decided this case, which cast a shadow over PACER's ability to charge user fees to retrieve court documents. The court held in that case that states could not copyright and monetize their published laws. It was the case out of Georgia, but I I couldn't give you a name uh, uh, on it. Yep, yep. It's Georgia versus Public Resource Online. There, uh, Georgia had tried to copyright its code, and the court said, nope, you can't do that. Uh, The case didn't actually concern an analog to PACER, but its broad reasoning has spawned litigation challenging PACER's fees, and that Uh, case is pending in the federal circuit right now. Interesting. All right. On the subject, 
uh, of the court and the internet. In what year did the court acquire its website? And because guess the year questions are, I think, unfairly hard. Your hint I agree. Is, <laughs> I agree. Your hint is it's the same year that the court handed Playboy a victory by striking down a law that required TV operators to block pornographic channels. This question seems a little too risque by Giancarlo. <laughs> I'm just going to throw out a guess. 1998? No, you're close. You're close. It's 2000. Uh, actually, it happened on April 17th of 2000, and the case was United States versus Playboy Entertainment. All right, Zach, your last question for the day. You've done very well. I'm impressed. <laughs> Hold that thought. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in 1996, Congress passed the Communications Decency Act, which, among other things, criminalized the knowing transmission of indecent materials to minors over the Internet. The next year, the, the Supreme Court struck down part of that act in this landmark case. I told you to hold that thought, GC. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I really don't know. That would be, and you know, it just occurred to me that we went from technology to pornography really quick. Sorry about that. It's <laughs> 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 fully two-thirds of our questions. The case is Reno versus ACLU. <laughs> Writing for the majority, Justice Stevens famously said, that the government may not reduce the adult population to only what is fit for children. Well, that's it for today. Thanks so much for letting me join you again, GC. I really had a great time. And thanks to everyone else for listening to SCOTUS 101. Again, be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we would really appreciate it if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation, executive produced by Amy Swear and Giancarlo Canaparo. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.